Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome back to the podcast. We are without Ryan today, so uh, we are without the addition of his wisdom uh, and insights, but we're going to cover a new subject, and we're going to be looking at a subject of interest that came up in our survey, which is the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, spiritual warfare, things Mm. like that. And so what I had asked you guys to do is just be prepared to kind of discuss, have a conversation with, I think, the, the passage that is the go-to passage <laughs> in Ephesians chapter 6. Mm-hmm. So basically we're looking at Ephesians 6, uh, 10, the, the primary passage is 10 through sort of 18, that, that kind of passage. Uh, I mainly am going to be actually breaking with... Uh, the version I normally use on Sundays, which is the CSV. I'm using the ESV today mainly, mm. or just my own translation of the Greek uh, in places where I think the ESV is not quite clear. Mm-hmm. Um, but I essentially have three aims today with this conversation. The first one is that, one, uh, we might put spiritual warfare of Ephesians 6 into the context of the whole book in particular mm. the context of the heavenly realms motif that is in every single chapter of that mm. book uh, leading up to six. So we're not going to cover the whole book, but I just I think it's good for us to note uh, the context of um, the Ephesians 6 stuff about the spiritual horses and heavenly realms. I think this, that's very important. Um, two, I think we need to demystify spiritual warfare uh, we've all come across these folks, or in my case, I have been one of these folks uh, that have a sort of, I would consider I would consider it to be, I guess the nice way to say it would be an <laughs> unbiblical view of spiritual warfare yeah. that has become, in essence, paranormal. In other words, it's a it's a view of spiritual warfare that is paranormal, uh, where we engage with shouting at demons and uh, holding heavenly court or whatever, and doing strange things, uh, where Paul's solution here in Ephesians 6 seems to be really normal, (laughs) like normal spiritual warfare uh, is, we're going to have a discussion about what he means by putting on the armor. And it, and it just looks like the normal stuff of the Christian life of sharing the gospel, being prepared with the gospel. And thirdly, to encourage Christians to stand firm in the gospel, which protects them. The gospel clearly has a protecting, standing in the gospel, what Christ has already done for us, clearly has a defensive or a protective kind of uh, uh, effect on us, but also to be prepared by it. Uh, Paul wants the Christians there to be prepared in the gospel, mm-hmm. and then also to wield the gospel against the enemies of uh, humanity who hold people in the grip of slavery, these mm-hmm. spiritual forces in heavenly realms. Um, and so I want to jump, first of all, into the context. I'm just going to read what I wrote here, and this is a summary of the heavenly <clears throat> realms motif, or the heavenly, heavenly realms theme in the first four or five chapters, and then I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, So throughout the text, the author, Paul, explains the reasons why the recipients of the blessings can experience them in the heavenly. So that's in chapter one. So he uses various biblical references. Christ is presented as having 
authority over the powers of the world for the benefit of the church. That's chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. And through their participation in Christ's resurrection, it turns out that Gentile believers who were once enslaved by the gods of this world, the false gods of this world, these spiritual forces in heavenly realms, so these Gentile believers who were once subject to those powers are now seated with Christ in heavenly realms too, where he has authority over those powers. That's Ephesians 2, 2 through 7. And then the church, as the revealed mystery of God, has made known to the powers in the heavenly realms that both Gentiles and Jews are one people of God. That is the mystery of the gospel that is being manifest to uh, the heavenlies, that is being proclaimed throughout the world, um, that this mystery now is that both Jew and Gentile are one family in Christ and both participants of his resurrection power. And then Christ descent and ascent far above all the heavens in chapter 4 has given uh, them, him the right to give gifts of ministry to the church, among other reasons, to equip the saints so that they will not be deceived by error. That's Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. So now mm. Christ having ascended through the powers of the heavens and to the throne of God has now mm. poured out gifts of ministry on the church so that uh, they can undo the works of the devil, so that they can set people free from uh, the power of the enemy. And then the also, uh, author also urges us, Paul urges us, or the readers, to no longer live as Gentiles in slavery, but instead live righteously, leaving no room for Satan in Ephesians 4, 17 and 27. And there mm -hmm. he uses this idea of do not give Satan a foothold in your life, there's no reason for a Christian now to allow Satan to have a foothold in their life or a stronghold in their Christian life because they've been set free. They're mm -hmm. seated with Christ in heavenly realms. So this is a mm -hmm. fascinating book. And now it seems like chapter 6 is the penultimate of this. Chapter 6 is the climax of, of where he's been going with this heavenly realms theme. Uh, and so it's very interesting. Who, who has it open in front of them? Can you read James for us, verses 10 through 18? Of chapter 6? Yeah. 10 through 18. <clears throat> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil days, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, Take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayers and supplication. To that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all of the saints. 
What a fantastic passage. One of the mm-hmm. greatest gems in all the New Testament. So just quickly, I guess I would ask, um, initial thoughts or initial um, thoughts for you that come out of that passage, um, what's the imperative there? Stand. Stand. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Stand, stand firm, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great one. But it's not a yeah, it's not a passive standing. Yeah, like you're you're actively taking a position, and not like and, a, just a statue. Yeah, it's not like a, oh, sure. This is, this is just what I do with my life. I stand around. <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah, I'm, I'm it's taking a position. I'm taking a position on a bulwark. You know, some kind of defensive mm. bulwark, and <laughs> defending it. And not you know, yeah. not moving from that spot. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's it's in fact the word stand. Um, there there the the passage can be broken into essentially uh, three grammatical uh, ideas, mm-hmm. and the first one would be a list of imperatives. Mm-hmm. And so what he does is he gives us uh, maybe six or eight imperatives here, and I'll, I'll read them to you. Um, so the first one is be strong. That's mm-hmm. verse 10. So his first imperative, and in the Greek, what, so for, for those of you who are watching, if you, you've not had any language backgrounds, let me explain this really quickly. Every word in the New Testament Greek, its mode, that is to say, it, what, whatever mode it appears in, is built into the form of that word, right? So you know for sure. So whereas in English, we have what's called an analytical language where you derive uh, meaning from word order. So subject, verb, object. How do you know what the subject is? Well, you know where it is. How do you know where the verb is? Well, you know where it is. And the object usually <laughs> follows the verb. So we derive meaning in English from word order. But in Greek, you derive meaning from word form. So the form of the word mm-hmm. determines the meaning. And the form of these words is uh, not even debatable. It's just it's just a matter of grammar and syntax. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Greek is structured a little bit different. So when I say these are imperatives, what I mean is these are commands. Mm-hmm. These are things Paul commands them to do, and that command is built into the structure of how that word appears uh, in in the text. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you guys know this because you're seminarians. Uh, well, so the first thing he says in Some verse ten us. there. Yeah, well, yeah, you're getting there, um, is uh, to be strong, right? This uh, idea, the Greek word here is uh, uh, which is a really hard word to say, um, but it's be strong in the Lord, in Korea, in the Lord, right? Um, and then he says, uh, put on. In verse 11, he says, put on or clothe yourself in this armor of Christ, in Christ, and then in verse 13, he says, take up, right? That's another imperative, aristactive imperative. And then he says in verse 13b, again, resist. Now, this actually is an infinitive, but the infinitive is mm. determined by its, by its context. And so the force of the infinitive is imperatival. Uh, it is an imperative. And so they are to resist the devil. And then they are to, as you mentioned in verse 14, they are to stand, stand firm. That's another imperative. And the other one is to receive, actually. Verse 17, here we have an imperative that is actually a passive, uh, where they are to receive uh, the helmet and the sword. Both the helmet and the sword, they're uh, they're conjoined by this same imperative. 
You're to receive the helmet of salvation, receive the sword of the Spirit. These are not things you produce. These are things you receive. Very interesting. And then uh, pray. Verse 18 is another mm-hmm. imperative. They're to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. And so those are the imperatives. So clearly we are being commanded to do some things here, mm-hmm. right? Right? Yeah. Uh, uh, so what are the... What is the thrust of the commands? I, I agree with you. I think they can all be summarized by this idea of kind of stainai is the word it uses. Mm-hmm. But the idea is to to plant yourself firmly mm-hmm. in a reality, right? right. In, in, and we're told what the reality is. What is the reality? Are you talking about that we're engaged in warfare? Um, yeah, that's up right. Up in verse... Uh, Verse 10, where it talks about, or uh, sorry, verse 12, where our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, mm-hmm. but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in heaven, for this reason, do these things. Mm-hmm. Meaning what? Can you clarify your... <laughs> <laughs> so give us some exposition on that. What's... Um. So yeah, our our sorry to put you on the spot. Oh no, no, our our conflict is fundamentally against a spiritual a spiritual enemy. Yeah, it plays out in the physical. Right, plays out. It has temporal consequences, um, <clears throat> but our battle. The reason our the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal is because our battle isn't fundamentally carnal. Right. Um, but we also need to avoid the pitfall of of, of hyper spiritualizing and becoming right. gnostics, where okay, everything here doesn't matter. Oh, that's right. Because that's right. his solution is okay. Do the things here, yeah, and that's that right. that engages you in the spiritual <laughs> in the in the spiritual battle. There, very good thought. Very good thought. Yeah, we don't want to become Christian gnostics. We don't want to hyper spiritualize the Christian faith. We don't want to think that the only things that matter are, are the things that are going on, quote unquote, in the spirit. But clearly, in the text, as you pointed out, the 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 sphere <clears throat> of the battle is taking place. The real battle. <clears throat> excuse me, is taking place in the realm mm. of the spirit, but it's but the battlefield often is the realm of mm-hmm. the natural, what we would call the natural or just everyday life. The mundane. The mundane, <laughs> really. That's where Paul the gives us a great example. I would, I'd say, so I know we'll probably turn there, but the other passage I would say in, in connection with Ephesians 6 is uh, 2 Corinthians 10. Where he does in verse three yeah. says, um, "For we do not wage war according to the flesh, but what precedes that." And at the end of it says, "I beg you." This is verse two. When I am present, I will not need to be bold with confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think they're living according to the flesh. Okay, Ooh. then we get the spiritual warfare uh, comments, just like we read in, in um, Ephesians six, and then you get the end of verse six in Second Corinthians says, "And we are ready to punish any disobedience." by once your obedience is complete. So Paul's context is spiritual warfare, but the confrontation is is merely practical. Oh, I just have to, I have yeah, to confront great. someone on their sin and their disobedience. So I believe he he's extending spiritual warfare beyond mere ethereal realms. Yes. We just think mm-hmm. of these spirits waging war, but Paul's actually grounding it in that it's uh, there's spiritual warfare with oh. human interaction. And, and he says nothing in that text. That's such a great text to bring up yeah. because he's pulling down strongholds yeah. that set themselves up <laughs> against the knowledge of God. This yeah. is clearly speaking the truth yeah. to people who are in the grip of Satan. 
But there's mm. nowhere in that passage or this one yeah. where he's shouting at Satan, mm. as you often see people do. No, he's do. got to confront people he knows. He's Yes, he that's has to it. confront the deception that these people, and that's, the disobedience. That's one of the most fascinating things, things about that Second Corinthians passage is... He's he's talking about the combat of ideas, yeah, right? ideas, which is sort of the meeting place between the the spiritual right. and the temporal uh, here in our mind and our physical body. So much of the warfare is this is this. Hey, we're trying to reform our ideas to align more rightly with the truth, and and in so doing, it defeats the yeah. schemes of the of the yeah. enemy there. And, mm. So uh, the end result of that idea, though, is obedience, is Christ likeness. So all spiritual warfare is directional. Boy, you're right about that. So the flaming arrows here, I'm thinking about that. The the <clears throat> ideas that we're fighting against, aren't we all susceptible mm-hmm. to deception? And isn't that the mm-hmm. enemy's primary the primary way in which he he did brings God, us into captivity? Did right? God really say? Yeah, did God really say? <laughs> His playbook yeah. really hasn't changed. Yeah. But it's this idea, yeah. idea that he bombards our thinking with with false ideas, with yeah. wrong-headed ideas, with with deception. Mm-hmm. And so deception is a major this is why error is such a big deal. Yeah. Being doctrinally yeah. sound is such a big deal. Yeah. Mm. Um my mom was telling me last night about um we were having a chat and she was telling me uh, just about this Bible study that she leads at the sort of uh, the high rise where she where she lives, and there's lots of elderly, retired people that come in there, and she leads this Bible study, and one of the main things that she's constantly having to do is just correct error, like people coming in with ideas yeah. that kind of blow up the Bible study with these wacky, kooky ideas that are not solidly grounded mm-hmm. in the Word. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that's that's the... If, if Satan can get us there, if he can get us yeah. captive to deception... Man, what other havoc can he wreak in our lives? You I mean, know? Think, mm-hmm. think about the content of the New Testament. You've got the you got the the book of Acts where it depicts this generous, really gracious community, everybody's living with everything in common and it's great. And then yeah. the rest of the content of the New Testament is correction to to error. Sure. You know, there's there's instruction and but most of the time the things are, the letters are the epistles are being written. Right. In order to combat some error that's crept into the the church there, or that they yeah, bought yeah, into, yeah. so and and later uh, the other books of Ephesians, uh, Ephes- Second Ephesians and Third Ephesians, right? Which is First and Second Timothy. Uh, they're written to Timothy. They're not written to the Ephesians. And it's quite clear that error has crept into this church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember what he said in Acts twenty to the elders that he gathered there across mm-hmm. the channel when he gathered all the elders. Remember what he warned them. Yeah. yeah, he told the Ephesians, "These ravenous wolves, these false teachers, are going to come in like wolves in sheep's clothing, and they're going to tear the body of Christ apart." Something like that. But with their errant teaching, by the time we get to Timothy, he has to send his protege Timothy there yeah. to just deal with this uh, environment in which all this error is just circulating in their home churches and their house churches, and mm-hmm. it's a fiasco. And then we get to the Book of Revelation. Remember, Jesus is warning to the Ephesian church. Does anybody remember what it was? To the church in Ephesus. You've forsaken your first love. You're working hard, right? You're doing Mm -hmm. a lot of good works. And he told them in Ephesians 2.10 that God had prepared works for them (laughs) to do, but they just sort of lost their passion Mm -hmm. 
for the gospel, lost their passion for Jesus himself, he's their first love. Mm. And so it's very interesting that the Ephesian church needed so much correction, but here in this book, he's in such a good mood, isn't he? Uh, <laughs> he's flying high, man. I mean, the, the ideas that he's putting, just laying out on the page, pouring out on the yeah. page are so lofty and so fantastic. Mm-hmm. You just, it, this is the most encouragement, encouraging New Testament book you can read um, because of this, this theme here. Can I ask a question? <clears throat> so based yeah. on this of false ideas or flaming arrows, is that the primary spiritual warfare that the church faces, which are lies? Which are not outright lies, but just mere deceptions, or it's yeah. a monicum of truth that's just been perverted. Is yeah. that the primary? It, it is the primary. In our, in our context? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, there are lots of ways you could destroy a church. But, I mean, the, you could destroy it through gossip. You could destroy it through backbiting and slander. Mm-hmm. You could th- destroy it through all kinds of just relational divisions. I've seen churches, I've been a part of churches that have been just torn asunder like that. Yeah. But one of the greatest ways, the greatest way that Satan can destroy a church, look look at like the Methodist church today. Yeah. I mean, we love our Methodist brothers and sisters who are staying true to the gospel. But I mean, they're, the Methodist church is, um, they're, they're, they're ordaining like trans people, right? Yeah. Uh, to, to be trans women, to be their <laughs> the pastors mm-hmm. in the ministry. That's apostasy. Yeah. So if Satan can get a grip on people's minds, if he can deceive them into believing yeah. things that are not biblical, mm-hmm. not the truth, he can destroy a church from the yeah. ground up. It's just not a church anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what we see here. Um, <clears throat> he mentions some participles too, so I'm all into the grammar today yeah. <laughs> because I just like the grammar of the text. <clears throat> but in, in addition to... The imperatives, he also mentions, uh, these participles, verses 14, 15, and 16, he says, girding up, you know, girding Mm -hmm. up your loins with truth, and then putting on, putting on, uh, again, this armor, and then binding the shoes. So the word binding there is another participle, and then taking up the shield of faith. So Mm -hmm. this idea of the imperatives, what follows the imperatives are these participial phrases where it's just assumed that this is the activity of the Christian, which is constantly putting on Christ, constantly putting Jesus on. Uh, mm-hmm. And so so it, it's just very interesting the way that he writes this out. Then you have the substantives. Now, the substantives are these ideas like um, verse 13, the panoplion, uh, from which we get the word panoply. Um, and this word means the complete array of armor. Right, so it's translated the complete array of armaments. Mm-hmm. That is to say, whatever you need, whatever is needed for you to engage in this war, um, you have that. And then you also have in verse fifteen the word aletheia, which is great. Uh, yeah, which is a great word to name your your daughter. Um, but this word truth, this idea of really, this is the crux here. Now, he's not, I don't think he's just talking about speaking the truth, that is to say, obeying the Ten Commandments to not bear false witness. Mm. Some commentators take it that way. I don't think so. Uh, that, that, of course, is part of our warfare, is speaking the truth in love. But I think here in this context, he means the truth of the good news, yeah. the truth of the word, the truth of the gospel, mm-hmm. because this is what the devil fears most and mm-hmm. his powers uh, his minions fear the most. And then also uh, you have the uh, uh, 
Thoraka tes dikaiosunes, which is the breastplate of righteousness, mm-hmm. this idea of the breastplate of righteousness. We actually, uh, um, James mentioned this last week, you find this imagery in Isaiah 59. Mm-hmm. You guys have your Bible? Can you turn back there for a second? This is one of the oh. coolest, most fascinating passages in the entire Bible. <laughs> That's a strong claim. <laughs> Man, I'm in Isaiah can, 59 for my say, devotion you, tomorrow. So you can make that claim from lots of passages. <laughs> you, you, you can, yes, yes, of course. But in Isaiah 59, I want to show you the resolution to it. Something you might not see if you just look at Isaiah 59. If you look at Isaiah 59, mm-hmm. but then you don't look at Isaiah 61, right? Uh, you right. you would miss it. <laughs> you got to read read through to Isaiah 61. But mm-hmm. uh, he mentions here in Isaiah 59. Um, if the first thing that he does here between verses 2 and 8 is he gives them an indictment for their sin. And it's quite clear that in addition to the many transgressions that Israel was guilty of at the time, he says, your, your sins have hidden my face from you. And in verses 2 through 8 is an indictment for sin for their good works are works of iniquity. So all of their supposed good works, which Isaiah has repeatedly said, stop bringing these sacrifices, <laughs> and uh, these things are worthless. Your life doesn't align with your confession, mm-hmm. right? Is what he's saying there. And so these good works are just works of iniquity to the Lord because they're, they're evil. They're serving to further their judgment. <laughs> y- yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And then in verses 9 through 16 is the just punishment for sin leading to, notice this, the dehumanization or the animalization of Israel. And so he compares them in the poetry to now animals. Which verse is that? I'd like to read that. Which, which one it is, that? is in verses 9 through 16, um, where he says, uh, you grow up around like you have no eyes in verse 10. Mm-hmm. Among those full of vigor are like dead men. We all growl all like, like bears. bears. Yeah, we moan is. and moan like, like dull doves. We hope for justice, but justice mm-hmm. is no more. And mm-hmm. so there's just this idea. This, it, of course, it's imagery; it's a metaphor. Sure. But the idea there is that they just become less beastly than human. They, yeah, become, they become beastly. beastly. That's a good yeah. Way. yeah. And then in verses 13 through 12, you have the you know prophecy of salvation. Yahweh clothes himself in righteousness as a breastplate, right, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He puts garments of vengeance wrapped himself in the war cloak. Right, mm-hmm. that word cloak means the the cloak of war, the war cloak. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting here that it's God <laughs> who mm-hmm. is going to war, and He's the one putting on the helmet of salvation. He's the one putting on the breastplate of righteousness. What do you make of this imagery? Is Paul drawing on this imagery, or no? Could, <laughs> couldn't possibly be. Paul doesn't know the Old Testament that well. <laughs> That's a joke. Well, you you brought it up. So you should, uh, yeah, absolutely. you should expand on it. <clears throat> what do you think, James? Well, expanding on it, I mean, it's exactly what you said. I think Paul is drawing on here, and as you already alluded to in um, 61 of Isaiah, uh, we see further allusions to it. Um, but here, clearly, the only one who is righteous is God himself, and I think there's a clear allusion here to the Lord judging through the servant yeah. who has suffered and right. been resurrected and been exalted. Um, and led many, or made many righteous. Right. And so there's clearly an idea here that there is only one righteous uh, person. So when we talk about the breastplate of righteousness, we can't say, oh, this is my good deeds, this is my righteousness. Because yeah. he's just told um, us 
because previously in this passage in Isaiah fifty nine, that your, evil, your righteousness right. is terrible. Right, your righteousness right. is yeah, yeah. It's absolutely. Sin. Yeah, that there's no justice taking place on the earth, and so the Lord comes right. to exercise justice. Right, right. Um, and you you can think of Romans three that God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith. That's right. That's that's a, that's a good correlation there. What do you make of this idea that in the same breath, I mean, in the same pen strokes that he says, you know, that he prophesies salvation, God mm-hmm. is putting on his breastplate of righteousness, he's putting on the helmet of salvation to save them. The very next pen strokes is he, he engages in vengeance. He brings the full force of his wrath and his vengeance mm-hmm. upon sin. And then it, it ends here quite clearly. Clearly, the Redeemer comes to mm-hmm. Zion to those who turn from their transgression, but it's in his pouring out of his wrath on sin. Mm-hmm. So in the in Isaiah's mind, you can't pull those two things apart. Mm-hmm. So so how do we see then Isaiah fifty three mm-hmm. as being God's just judgment of sin in a man who now bears our iniquities and our transgressions? Do you think that Isaiah also has in view Isaiah fifty three? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, chapter fifty three, that sermon in which he's thought of one human image bearer who now bears the weight of all of our sins. Yeah, he must, or, or, he, or this individual is destroying all of humanity. Right. For no one is righteous. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, there, I mean, this is, again, when we're talking about truth and sound doctrine, this is why we must hold to a penal substitutionary atonement. That's right. Uh, that Christ took our penalty in our place mm-hmm. on the cross that's, and drank that's the, right. the cup of God's wrath to its dregs. God has. God is going to punish sin, right? Yeah. I don't know if we should say He has to punish sin. Do you, are you under the impression that God has to punish sin, or do you think that God just chooses to punish sin oh. out of His sovereignty? I lean more towards has to because Why? it's in His character. Yeah, mm-hmm. as a just. What about holy His character nature? necessitates the judgment of sin? <clears throat> that His holiness cannot coexist with that which is unholy. That's mm-hmm. right. God is holy. Yeah. Uh, and so while nothing compels God, God's holy nature demands justice. It demands... Mm-hmm. He doesn't act outside of his nature. He doesn't yeah, act so outside of So I guess it's, in some nature. ways it's both. Mm-hmm. It's his choice, but it's also his nature. Sure, sure. It's, yeah, yeah he's, mm-hmm. he's supremely sovereign to choose, to judge, and how he will judge. Yeah. But according to his holy nature, sin requires punishment. Moral wrongdoing or the breaking of his decree requires punishment. Clearly here, this is the way in which God is going to save Mm-hmm. Them and then we get to uh, Isaiah sixty one. So if I could point something out, Isaiah sixty one. Now this is the Messiah who comes, and he's anointed by the Spirit of the Lord to save Israel. Okay, in verse one it says, uh, "The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Praise mm. the Lord. This is so great. This is what mm. everyone wants to hear. Next verse. To proclaim the year of the Lord's jubilee. Praise God, the year of the Lord's deliverance, and, and the, the day, day of, of vengeance of our God. <laughs> <laughs> to comfort all who mourns. Why is the day of vengeance of our God mm. also a comforting message? Oh, I think we were, we were talking about this in the Worldview class on Wednesday how the fall has introduced an element of of messiness to to earthly justice yeah and god has given the sword to the government to ex, to enact law and and but within that 
there's going to be times where the ju- the unjust go unpunished. Right. Right. And the the even the even the the Mosaic law where it says that you know you have to have two or more witnesses in order to be able to to put somebody to death for you know for a crime. Right. Means that some people are going to get away with it. Oh man. And so there is. Or it a, seems like they do. And and injustice is a burden on on the one who's been wronged right. for sure, but also on the society that they're a part of. And so there is a comfort in knowing one day this injustice is going to be dealt with perfectly right. at the gate at the day of God's vengeance. That's right. Can I? I that think there's, there's a, a there's, there's a hope in that. There's a tangible mm-hmm. example. So the Daybell trial is going on, mm-hmm. and everybody's inflamed, oh, even yeah. though they know, and she yeah. just got all those guilty verdicts. But everybody is commenting when you read comments or right. hear people upset that she's smiling and smirking during the whole thing. And so even in the messiness of justice, there may be a legal presentation now she's going to be in jail, but she doesn't feel the weight of her right. guilt mm, and shame. Yeah. At least we can't pa- um, recognize that. She's not displaying it, but we sure. know the day of vengeance, all will feel the weight in the soul yeah, yeah. of what sin and unrighteousness cause. And I, that's what mm. I hope for in those days. Yes, yeah. people may go to jail. Right. But to feel the burden of what they caused, and and cosmically, there is still the injustice that that murder has been committed, even though she's going to jail, right. it yeah. doesn't unmurder her children. Yeah. That's right, yeah. right. And there will be one day where, trusting that the judge of the earth will do what is right, I don't know yeah. the spiritual state of her kids. I, I don't. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Trusting that the judge of the earth is going to do what's right, all of creation, the entire universe will yeah. see. She has been dealt her just punishment, yeah. right. and they have been they have been given the justice, whatever that looks like. Like I said, I yeah, can't, yeah. I can't. Yeah. Um, but all of the but That's the the point. cosmic injust the the cosmic wrongness of that will be set right to put on display God's wisdom, you know, in yeah. in punishing sinners. And, Man, you know. I think you're exactly right about that. This the New Testament repeatedly tells us that we are going to stand before God and give account. But I think even that injustice and that evil that requires God's punishment for and his wrath upon <laughs> that sort of sin, I think in that day it will also have been revealed to everyone, to great mourning, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, that all of that sin was already punished in Christ, yeah. <laughs> that it already was born by a man who took that sin for us. And I think... But what, what I see here is, this is what I see. I see in Isaiah 59, verse 16, Yahweh cries out, there was no man. Like, there was no man to intercede for the people, to intervene mm. for them. And, and, wonder, and Yahweh wondered that there was no one to intervene, that there was no man. And then in Isaiah 61, what, is, what does God give us? He gives us a man, <laughs> a man who is anointed by the Spirit to set the captive free. And his good news that comforts all mm-hmm. is that the captives are now set free. Praise God. But uh, it is also a day of his vengeance in which the wrath of God is, like you were saying, Pastor James, poured out on Jesus, right? In the actions of the Romans and the Sanhedrin, poured out on Jesus, taking all of the blame uh, and and all of the punishment that would have been ours uh, had we been had we yeah. stood in that place, and unfortunately, those who reject it, they will mm-hmm. receive. Yeah. That well, and and I had to encourage some people, even this weekend after the Dave verdict. Okay, now we pray that she finds Christ. Yes, and that we do. Her cosmic punishment yeah. is yeah. discharged. You know, like 
Um, pray for your but, enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, but we rejoice that justice. Command. We rejoice when justice is done. We do. But we we remember that that part of the the. Sorry, I'm my brain just collapsed. I'll talk later. <laughs> so if you have at the in Isaiah 59 and 61, I think you have the 10,000 foot level that justification is. Uh, mm. a, achieved by God in his own hand by sending his servant. But doesn't that trickle down into the 10 level, 10 foot um, range for us back in Ephesians 6? So in yeah. verse 10, it says, yeah, finally, yeah. be strengthened by the Lord. And then i curious, and by his vast strength. So our strengthening by the Lord is in his own strength. So he's the one that's going to be mm-hmm. carrying out this spiritual warfare, at least by that context. Would, would you not agree that that's what's Yeah, that's exactly down? right. So when it says, finally, be strong in the Lord, mm-hmm. in Creo, that, that, grammatically, that's what's called a dative of sphere. Okay. I think it's a dative of sphere. Okay. And what that means is it's the strength that you're standing in, exactly what you were just alluding to, is in the sphere of Christ and his victory. Yeah. So you have no claim to stand at all, and you have no strength to stand it's not of my own unless volition, it's in right. his yeah. mighty power, yeah. unless mm-hmm. it's in his mighty strength, Amen. right? So clearly, anybody who thinks they're going to stand according to their own works of righteousness, mm-hmm. as James was saying, mm-hmm. uh, or anybody who thinks they're going to just kind of suck it up, buttercup, and tough it out <laughs> under the, I mean, the withering attacks of the enemy. <laughs> that's Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3. It's the the, the uh, benediction that we do on Sundays. Mm. I pray that you be strengthened with power in your inner being through the Spirit. Yeah. Right? right. <laughs> and it's a strengthening of your inner yeah. being. It's a strength yeah, of yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, by awesome. God done yeah. to you. Yeah. That you may know the love of God. Yeah. 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 That, amen. Amen. Um, okay. So we have this breastplate of righteousness, this fascinating imagery, this helmet of salvation. But he also mentioned some other things like the, your put us in toimasia, which means uh, shoes fitted, mm. shoes buckled or shoes strapped up or something like that. But I think the shoes he's mentioning here, there are lots of passages in the Old Testament and Jesus in his own parables talk about, you know, he gives the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, where the guy comes back, he's actually Mm. absolutely bedraggled. He's a ragamuffin. Mm. He comes back. And so they put the robe on his back and shoes on his feet, right? Mm. So this is kind of imagery of just honor, of just yeah. comfort and care and being brought back into the family. But here it's clearly a warfare motif. And mm. archaeologists have found all kinds of um, <clears throat> uh, Roman boots or Roman shoes. Uh, they're usually some kind of reinforced sandals with cleats or metal spikes on the bottom like cleats. And so the idea here is war footing. Mm-hmm. And and so what are we being told to ground ourselves in or to be rooted feet shod in? The gospel of peace. The gospel of our reconciliation with the God that we are at war with, right? Yeah. So it's the mm-hmm. gospel of peace that we're grounded in, the gospel of peace. And so the feet here, I think, is an apt metaphor for just a foundation, right? Being rooted and grounded in this. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Any? No, I, yeah, I think I think it's interesting that you've got this warfare language, like the this this instrument of war, uh, mm. but it's rooted in the gospel of peace. Yeah, you know of of the, our rebellion being quelled. Um, yeah, I, sorry that that was that's what stood out to me about that. But um, 
Yeah, I'm taking mm-hmm. notes as you're talking here. Um, yeah, yeah. So clearly here, all the, the idea of the armor. All right, so let's just go through them. Let's look at them, and we'll say, okay, what what exactly do these things conform to? Before I do that, though, what is the biggest mistake you see people making when they read this passage in terms of application? I could give you several cookie ones, but I want to hear the ones that you've come across first. And this, of course, is redemptive. This yeah. is just to bring correction so that we yeah. we practice so, rightly. I, I can speak to that kind of uh, figuratively. I see people doing what Saul wanted David to do when he fought Goliath, that he gave him physical breastplate. Did I steal your thunder? No, I, I think it's so fascinating <laughs> yeah. that there's that picture in the Old Testament of this ill-fitting armor mm-hmm. given, and yet yeah. here's this picture of... We're being given this armor. And right. like, anyway. Yeah. And David steps out in the strength of the Lord for the battle because he knows the battle is won because of God. Right, yeah. um, right, right. And so I think that's more of an illustration of right. the misconceptions, but I'll let you guys speak okay. to the yeah, kooky. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> what, what have you come across where people maybe have misinterpreted this and then applied it in yeah. ways that Paul just doesn't envision here in the text? Well, it alludes to what I was saying earlier. There's a pressing of the analogy that makes this armor or donning the armor a personal endeavor that one must take in creating, I don't know, like some ritualistic seances to say, I'm going to put on the breastplate of righteousness or the helmet of salvation. And then it becomes possessive that it's become my armor that God has given me. And I think it's what you're saying. It's the Lord's armor. It's not mine. I'm a steward. So that's that's pressing the analogy in some ways that I've seen. Genuine, I think it's intended and well-meaning, sure. but it ultimately fails yep. um, to, to produce what uh, Paul is advocating here. I, I, the way that I've seen this probably pressed for detail that Paul really doesn't go into here is is too much emphasis on the illustration, not enough emphasis on the referent. Mm. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. people just wondering, like, what, what are all the uses in Roman uh, warfare for the shield or the, or the, the helmet? And mm. so they extrapolate way beyond uh, what the text is actually pointing to. But if you really go through there, can we just for a second just kind of go through them? And I think it, it's pretty clear. So he says, put on the whole armor of God. Then we get to verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God. Uh, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What does he mean by the evil day? Today. <laughs> yeah. What's is is it a certain day in the future when that we're looking forward to, or is it any day? I take this to mean any day evil comes to your doorstep, like yeah. <laughs> any day you experience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's Ephesians four. He says, uh, "Walk as." Walk in wisdom, making the best use of the time, for the days are evil. The days are evil, right. Yeah. So any any day that evil comes to your doorstep, which is very often, that's the evil day. Um, and then he says, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. Now, interestingly, the the word here is means there's a verb that says gird up. And then it's just truth. So the word belt really isn't in the Greek. Mm-hmm. It's re- that's really more of uh, an interpretive um, translation. Yes, yeah, CSB says with truth like a belt around your waist. Like a belt. That that's very interpretive. Yeah. The the Greek just says girding up the truth. <laughs> Right, but the idea in the first century is the way you would do that is with a belt, <laughs> you know, some kind of sash, right? So the sash of truth. So what's the truth we've mentioned before? 
he's likely in this context referring to the good news, the gospel of Jesus, um, which we'll get to in a second. And then having put on the breastplate of righteousness, how does a believer, according to Romans, have righteousness? It is bestowed. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a righteousness a, that is endowed, yeah. mm-hmm. that is given to us as an act of grace. Whose righteousness is it? Jesus is Christ. It's Christ's yeah. it's Christ righteousness, mm-hmm. right? So what do, we, what do we learn? That we are the righteousness of Christ, uh, that, that God punished Christ on the cross, that Christ was punished on the cross for our sins, so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. This is where I've seen this taken probably too far. Now, it's true. Sin opens us up, I think, to to more spiritual attack because it darkens our mind and it makes us, you know, less agile. And, and <laughs> um, But this is the one where people I've seen say, oh, you have sin in your life. That's why you have... This, this particular spiritual attack. And so you have to work out this righteousness. You have to become, you have to, to gird yourself in, in these righteous acts in order to prevent uh, the attack of the, you know, to the attack oh, of the enemy. Yeah. Right. That's where I've seen them press it and you go, yeah, I get it. There's truth to the, to the reality that sin does open us up more. But this is this is not our righteousness. Yeah, yeah. It's just like it's not our salvation. It's not our truth. It's, we're we're taking these things that have been, been given to us by God. Right. Very very good point. Our salvation is not a gift we give to God yeah. through our good works. It's a gift that He bestows upon us because of Jesus's work. Um, remember back in Romans three, where Paul's very clear: no one is righteous, and and he's emphatic. Absolutely no one, <laughs> right? So he's very clear about that. What what then are we Jews any better? No, not at all, for we have already made the charge that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. So it's quite clear then that what Paul is saying here is that the righteousness of God is manifested in Jesus for our sake and it's not our righteousness. Very, very important for us to understand that. So the breastplate of righteousness cannot be uh, me. Our good work. Yeah, checking the boxes mm-hmm. in order to appease a wrathful God. I can't appease a wrathful God. Christ already has. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if I'm not in Christ and I'm not in His righteousness, I am. Uh, it's open season on me. Like I, I have I have nothing to present yeah. God that is worthy. But isn't at all. that isn't that one of the attacks though of yes. like when when we aren't, when, you know, if we've fallen back into a pattern of sin or we've you know had a bad week and screwed up a bunch of stuff, isn't that one of the attacks of like oh your righteousness is so terrible? Yeah, you're such a horrible little yeah, like yeah. you know yeah. little creature yeah. you know, for yeah. God. This is where I think this, even though we're looking very personal in that moment, I would say. This is a communal thing as the church engaging in this putting on the armor of God because I need you to attest to me what is true of the gospel when I have believed a lie that I am not righteous and I need you to convey, but Christ's righteous covers you. Yeah. Like that, that's where this is oh, not man. just individual, this is Great communal. Yeah. Well, we talked about singing yesterday, but we, in the last couple of weeks, this is one of the things that public gathering and worship and praise does. <clears throat> yeah. Because what those songs that we are all singing together, all of us knowing that we blew it last week, <laughs> like all of us knowing. <laughs> that morning on the way maybe to church. Maybe the morning on the way to church, we had a knockdown, drag out fight with our <clears throat> spouse or whatever, our kids. And we come to church and we are reminded. 
that mm-hmm. we stand in the righteousness of Christ, not in our own righteousness. And this righteousness that yeah. we're all singing and celebrating and praising God for has an affective, yeah. it affects us. Yeah. We walk out the door better. We walk out the door reminded that our lives are to be conformed. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why Paul says, live up to that which you've already received. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> right? yeah right. He tells the Ephesians yeah. that. Well, that's so, chapter one, in yeah. him, in Christ, in not you. It's pointing to what is true, but that's right. to you. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, he says in Romans three twenty one, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the uh, law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and mm-hmm. all are justified by his grace freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, mm-hmm. a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, to be received by faith. So clearly that's our only hope here. Mm. So the bless, breastplate of righteousness Ain't ours. is not <laughs> our righteousness. It's Christ's. And then he goes on to say, and as shoes for your feet, we mentioned oh. this, having put on the readiness, that word readiness mm. has to do with preparation. So we're not just protected by the righteousness of Christ that we stand in against the slander and the attacks of the devil. Uh, and and his accusations were also prepared in the gospel. Hmm. Like, what are we prepared for? What are we getting ready for? I think we're getting ready for that which we don't know is coming ultimately. Uh, be ready in season and out of season to give a defense for the faith that you've been given. So I think right. it's preparation to say when yeah. I'm not engaged in maybe the confrontation of needing to confront a brother of sin or something right. along those, uh, I should constantly endeavor to prepare my mind and heart and soul for um, any confrontation that might come. But I also think there's another side to that, too. I prepare my heart because the more I know, the more I enjoy, the greater strength mm-hmm. I have, the more the righteousness has uh, been placed on me, and I've conformed to Christ. So I think preparation mm-hmm. is the life of the Christian. And you don't get a day off. Yeah, that's There is right. no retirement Well, Satan doesn't take a day off. Yeah. Your mm-hmm. sinful nature doesn't yeah. take a day mm-hmm. off. No truce. It, it's a really good oh, point that good. you bring up, yeah. uh, Patrick, is that part of the readiness is just us readying our lives to live according to the gospel mm-hmm. against temptation, against the day of evil, which is tomorrow, which is today, <laughs> right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of it, though, is our readiness to share the gospel, our readiness to actually penetrate the darkness, this dark age, sure. with the gospel, uh, which is the thing that Satan and the rulers, powers, and authorities are most worried about. That's they're mm-hmm. they're they're most worried about a Christian whose life matches their confession, who is proclaiming and freely sharing the gospel with people who are enslaved by these false gods, mm. by these demonic and spiritual forces. Yeah. Right. So there's a readiness that also comes with being prepared to share the gospel. And how do we do that? How how do we best do that? Some people are attending uh, classes. One is going on over at Water Springs, so uh, they can sort of learn how to share the gospel. I think that's fantastic. I think that's wonderful. We also run courses here locally, uh, First Principles of the Gospel. First Principles of Evangelism. First Principles of Evangelism, your worldview course, uh, Christian doctrine course that I teach. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have lots of ways in which we can be ready to share the truth with people, but being ready, being prepared in the church as well. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Well, Anything think, else yeah. I forgot with that? I think the, I mean the, the the military language here. I'm sure Paul was very aware 
of the training that Roman soldiers oh, yeah. undertook yeah. and maintained. Like they mm-hmm. practiced these things. They didn't go through boot camp and then were sent out into the world to. <laughs> oh, that's right. You know, to to okay, you know, sure. it was ongoing mm-hmm. practice and ongoing readiness. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and yeah, one of the best ways that we do that is by sharing the story of how we were saved. Right. You know, reminding her, I can't tell you how many times I've shared my testimony and wound up in tears at the end of my testimony, being reminded of the goodness (laughs) of God to me, you know, and how, how incredible and marvelous the salvation of God is. And so, um, practicing it, reminding ourselves of what God has done for us, reminding others of what God has done for you, Mm -hmm. um, and, and doing it before you're confronted with, uh, (laughs) the, the actual combat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I guess mm-hmm. what's inferred in that, though, is there is a measure of sacrifice that is that Paul is proclaiming. And if I'm to prepare in this <clears throat> manner, I can't. Uh, I have to let go of another activity, desire, preparation for something else. So can I say that there's an inferred preparedness where you're having to make sacrifices, make, make choices between maybe two good things, mm-hmm. prepping to go to a class, study, and saying no to s- some sports sure. activity? Sure. Kid, that, and that's getting real practical. But in order for preparation, I'm I'm a limited commodity, right? And so yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, tomorrow, if Daniel Mueller, one of our elders, invited me out for a run, two minutes <laughs> into the run, it would be apparent that one of us had prepared for the run and one of us had not at all. Uh, and that guy can run marathons; he could run sixty miles yeah. in one race, and I I can barely run three. Mm-hmm. And so the point is that the reason I can't do what he does is because I just haven't carved it out in my life. I haven't, I haven't taken the time to whatever trade-off I have to make yeah. to exercise those muscles, those running muscles at all. Yeah. And he has. And so it, and so yeah, part of that preparedness and readiness is look, there's things you gotta give up. If you wanna if you wanna grow in your faith, mm-hmm. you gotta practice spiritual disciplines, but you also gotta go to church. You gotta go to the Wednesday night study. You gotta learn the word in the context of community. These things you these are disciplines you have to put in your yeah. life in order for, for readiness to take yeah. place to but be this, prepared. But this isn't us advocating for like pure pietism of like no, spend no. all day, every day, locked in your room, yeah. just reading the Bible. In, <laughs> and, yeah. and Calvin's Institutes. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. The second revealed word. Um, <laughs> um, no, but but there is, there. I think your point is is good. You know, we we want to have a full life where we're Christian in our vocation and Christian yeah. in our family mm-hmm. raising, and, and so we don't want to just withdraw and become hermits. Yeah, yeah, yes, that, I but it does require yeah, some yeah, yeah. some proactive right proactive training and sacrifice of other things in order to prioritize mm-hmm. this. And that's what you know. I think of when we see this feet having been put on or being prepared by the readiness of the gospel. Paul talks about feet in the gospel, quoting Isaiah in Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet that go and share the good news. Yeah. And in Isaiah, we read what the good news is. The good news is our God, God reigns. reigns. That's and right. so are we living under the Amen. reality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Right. And that's why we make those decisions, right? We tend to think of priorities and God's the top priority. No, God is the priority. Yeah. Everything falls under subjection to Him. Yeah. What is His desire for us? And that's why we then make those practical decisions of yeah. priorities of, right, no, right. I need to give Him everything. I need to be able to be an effective husband, an effective father, an right. effective community member of yeah. a church, and an effective community member in the world. 
um, all under the lordship very of Jesus well Christ. said <clears throat> i think the two models we could adopt is what i would consider to be a pacomian model or a monastic model hmm. the monastic model is go live in a monastery and uh, <laughs> and live an ascetic life and 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 all that the other one is the puritan model puritans get a bad hmm. rap i just heard somebody slam them this last week ignorantly as i used to be puritans get a bad rap puritans believed of all of Christ for all of life, mm. right? So it, so it was in every context of life, raising mm. children, voting uh, in the con- on congregational matters, or plowing the fields, or yeah, conducting being, commerce. Being a worker. Being one, a worker. Yeah, one of, the worst, one of the worst witnesses of the gospel I ever saw was a Christian guy when I was building guitars for Larivee he would tell everybody nonstop about his faith and like, and bully for him. He did a great job with that way more than he was proactive in it way more than I did. He was an awful worker. (laughs) He'd come in late from breaks. He'd always be on his phone. He just, he didn't, he didn't pay attention to detail, you know, like, and we're doing detailed work on guitars and, you know, where details really matter. And it was to the point where I was literally going to go talk to him and say, Hey man, Stop telling people you're a Christian, right? Because we're all getting a bad rap from wow. you. Wow! Mm-hmm. Right? Because they know that I'm. They know that I'm Christian and Pat's Christian, and the, like, right, right. And we're we're you know knocking it out of the park here, mm-hmm. but we're getting lumped in with you. And he actually quit, and so he didn't come into work that day. No kidding. Um. So you know, but it, I was. Uh, it was literally the day that I was like, I can't. I cannot abide this anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was such a terrible witness wow. in the way that he worked, even though. With his with his mouth, he was you know, and again, I th- I don't think yeah, his calling yeah. is building guitars. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, well, anyway. well, that's a good point. That's a good point. We when we talk about right, we stand in the righteousness of Christ, no doubt about it. But we also follow the path of righteousness that Jesus set for us. Je- the Great Commission is to baptize the uninitiated, right, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and then to obey all that Christ has commanded. That's the path of righteousness he's laid out for us. And that's part of this too. But we have to start positionally. Like we have to start yeah. by understanding our, that positionally we stand in Christ's righteousness, and that mm-hmm. isn't going to change. Mm-hmm. That's a gift. But um, practically speaking, we, we have to live that righteousness now in a good work ethic and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and doing, doing the stuff yeah. that God has called us and prepared in advance mm-hmm. for us to do. Well, he goes on here and he says... Um, he uses some other metaphors. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith uh, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Um, what, what is the shield of faith? What is he talking about there? What do you think he is referring to? I think it's the depend the same dependent trust that he's talking about how our our salvation is by grace through faith. It's yes. this open handed, uh, non non uh, self righteous trust in the Lord that what He has said is true. Yeah, and yeah. that um, that that salvation in um, and so in the you know in the moments those flaming darts of are you know are you really saved? Are you a Christian? Is this going to work out? You know. Um, you know, is this terrible circumstance going to actually wind up for your good? All that kind of stuff is dealt with by that. Hey, I'm entrusting. I'm dependently entrusting myself to the yeah, care yeah, yeah. Of, of God here. So, mm-hmm. so there is a command here. I mean, he's saying take it up. That's mm-hmm. an imperative, 
And there is a trusting element where we trust in God to do something for us that we could not possibly do for ourselves. We trust in his righteousness. We trust all this, right? For sure. That's for sure true. What What are your thoughts about this? Anything else on what is the shield of faith? I, I mm-hmm. like that answer. Well, I my first thought when I read this is anything to, done apart from faith is sin that we read in the end of Romans. Oh, yeah. And so there's a connection point here that the modus operandi of the believer is ever, is to recognize the required faith in all of life. Yeah, yeah. And so as I endeavor to be faithful or more complete in my as a professional, if I was in the secular world, I'm going to do so out of faith. If I come to church, I'm going to worship out of faith. That's good. So yeah. I'm going to look at all paradigms of life and recognize God has put faith as a portion, various degrees, in everything. Mm-hmm. Is faith the denial? Of reality, does faith require us to suspend? No, because our belief in the we're, we're not what we call mm-hmm. fideists, or not fideists. Excuse me, is that, that, is that right the right word? That, yeah, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. where everything is just pure speculation, and mm-hmm. we're, we have reasonable faith. Yeah. So our faith is grounded in something that we have some tangible experience with or connection to, yeah. and it's mm-hmm. testable. Thank you, William Lane Craig. Thank you, <laughs> no, uh, man. You're exactly right. We have faith in facts, mm-hmm. not faith in feelings, not yeah. faith in mm-hmm. fantasy, yeah. right? Okay, yep. so great. Yeah, our faith yeah. is grounded in historic reality of the Christian church, of the Christian uh, faith. I do want to point one thing out, though. Grammatically, it, it doesn't really read, take up the shield of faith. In the Greek, um, both the shield and the faith those two phrases are have the what's called the definite article. So in Greek, if mm. if the word is indefinite, it can be interpreted abstractly. Both of you have have appealed to biblical texts. Both of you have appealed to a more of an abstraction in the sense that sure. you're living out your faith. You're 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 doing it, man. You're trusting so you, in the you, Lord. Are you saying he's saying take up the shield and the faith? I think what he means here grammatically is take up the shield of the faith. Gotcha. Um, because here it's 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 tan theoreon tes pistuos, and I think it's it's uh, it's not an arthurus. And what that means is it's a definite faith. Gotcha. And I and so mm. yes, while we are trusting in everything, we're trusting in Christ's righteousness and all that He's done for us. There is also the canon of faith, yeah. mm. the canons of faith, yeah. which are which is like you were saying in Romans ten, the the, the confession. Mm-hmm. Right, the the good confession, mm-hmm. which is, which is how we fight the good fight. That's mm-hmm. what Paul tells Timothy: fight the good fight, make the good confession. <laughs> right. So mm-hmm. here it it is our expression of trust, putting our trust in Jesus and all He's done with us. But it's also this doctrinal confessional content. Yeah. The faith mm-hmm. as a whole. Yeah. The faith itself. Uh, so that's our shield. Yeah. Right. It's our confession too. So it's kind of hard to put on to pick up the shield. If you're not part of a faith community, mm. Th- that that is right. That is right. Well, this when is you say a local church when you say faith community. Yeah. You're being specific as <laughs> yes. a local church, <laughs> a local church, and with elders, especially yeah. with the <laughs> the shield of the faith. Which that's an excellent point, Jeff. Um, I I do press press this illustration hard. Yeah. Um, because I think when we talk about the shield, and you do think Romans, the Roman shield was designed not to be a solo act. Oh, a Roman yeah. by himself with his shield was actually a pretty useless warrior in the sense of the shield is bulky, it's big. Um, it went from, you know, 
almost his top of his shoulders to almost his feet. Wow. And so it's a big thing yes. to lug around. But the shield in a community with the army, with the soldiers, the phalanx. it becomes... The phalanx, yeah. Yeah, it becomes just a... Super a force, weapon. Yeah, a force to be reckoned with. Um, and that's why it, it's a defensive weapon, but how the Romans used it, it was offensive. They used the shield right. to advance. To push forward. Yeah, and so I think we need to remember that, that we are locking Great shields point. with one another. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's really, really good. I, I think you're right about that, and I don't think that is pressing the <clears throat> analogy. I would ask this question. If you were a Greco-Roman living in Ephesus, mm-hmm. and Paul used that analogy, what would you see in That's your mind? You, think yeah. you would fill absolutely. in all... Paul would expect you to fill in all mm-hmm. those blanks. You would mm-hmm. watch at the numerous, sort of uh, countless um, uh, posts, outposts of Roman soldier, soldiers, where, as you were said, Daniel, they're practicing, right? Mm-hmm. They're literally... Uh, out there doing this in front of you to remind you, if you get out of line, we will bring the smack <laughs> right. down. So, but you're seeing them do this, yeah. and it's actually terrifying. Mm-hmm. And in one way, it can be comforting, because you know, no barbarians are coming over the wall, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and they're not going to disrupt they're the Roman economy, up. of which I am a part. Yeah. But on the other hand, it's like, well, if you're a rebel in this economy, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's quite terrifying to watch these this wall of shields. It's, mm-hmm. And it's not just a wall, it's also a roof. So in connection with mm-hmm. the next point, shield yeah. of faith yeah, to yeah. put out the flaming arrows, Romans practice what's testudoi, which just means turtle. And so the front ranks have the walls going up, mm-hmm. and then the mid, everybody behind has the shields over the head. For the arrows. Marching forward. Right. Um, yeah, towards And battle. so there really yeah. is this image of not this lone Roman out there trying to... <laughs> you know, but, but this whole, this little... Um, dome fortress. of shields yeah. <laughs> yeah. that becomes a f- impenetrable fortress yeah. to mm-hmm. flaming arrows, and you have to have them all together. Yeah. I think you're right about that. So so what's the application then for the Ephesian Christian living in Ephesus? It's the church. Mm-hmm. As, you, as you were saying, it's being rooted and grounded in the community of the faith that That's makes good. the good confession. And if you get out there on your own, you are an easy mark for the devil. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so great, great point. Uh, he goes on to say the helmet of salvation, putting on the helmet of salvation. Again, the, the, the grammar here is the helmet of the salvation, the salvation. That is to say, the salvation that Christ has, has purchased for us by his blood. Uh, so we, we note that. Um, and so what do all of these things now, and, and also taking up the sword of the Spirit. Now, this is very interesting because... He actually identifies what he thinks this is, mm. which is the Word of God. What does he mean by the sword of spirit of the Spirit being the Word of God? <laughs> Whenever I read this, okay. When you hear the phrase "the Word of God," what do you think? Um, I think the Bible. Yes, right. That's what I'm thinking initially. Yes, and I I think in his context, he probably isn't primarily thinking of. The, the 66 books of the Bible. I don't Because he's that's currently he's writing one of them. He's currently writing mm-hmm. one, and he's got a few left here <laughs> until he writes Titus, you know, or Second Timothy. So, um, so I don't think he's thinking the completed canon. Now, that is the way you and I, we retroject that idea back into his meaning. Yeah, and it's not wrong to do it's so. It's not yeah. wrong to do that. We have the We have the benefit of hindsight, and we have the benefit of having the completed canon. Mm-hmm. So no, no, no harm, no foul there. Yeah, yeah. But I think what he's thinking is something like what he says to the Corinthians when he says the word of Christ, that is the word of the cross. 
mm. right? The Word of God is the Word of the cross. First right. of all, the Word, Magia, that means the message. It's the message of God. And what's the message of God? Mm. It's the message of the cross. It's the message of okay. Christ and His cross. That's the gospel, Yeah. right? What do you think? But isn't, isn't the connection to the Spirit, though, the Spirit Himself is the message of God? Can, well, he's the, is He the conduit, or is He the one proclaiming the message, just like what Jesus says to the uh, disciples, the Spirit will bring to remembrance all that I have taught you. So there's some... The, the yeah. Spirit's oh, yeah. personal relationship is also the Word of God. He is the messenger bringing these truths or convictions. How would you... You're on the right track, okay. man. I Okay, I would just... I'll give you my opinion. Please. Uh, if you go back to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, he mentions two things there. He mentions the word of the cross, yeah. right? The message of the cross, the word of God, and the Spirit. So in both chapters 1 and 2, it is quite clear that it is the Spirit who unlocks the understanding okay. of a person to believe the gospel, which is otherwise a psychological impossibility for the Greco-Romans to yeah. embrace. It's just impossible to believe a message like that in that culture. So you need the Holy Spirit in, in chapter 2 to really set the mind free to believe the Word. So the sword of the Spirit is the Spirit who is the one who penetrates and convinces the heart and the mind of the truth of the cross or the truth of the Word. Now, maybe I'm reading into this. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I think that is what Paul has in mind. The sword of the mm -hmm. Spirit is the Holy Spirit's presence to convict and to convince us of the truth, whereas otherwise we would okay. not really be able to believe. So, so original the authorial intent of Paul would be to say the Spirit's active role in conveying what is true, or illuminating the heart to want to believe. But does the Spirit intend in giving Paul this to say, when the completed canon or when the canon is ready, that this is now the way in which I'm primarily speaking to you? Yeah. Do you get my question? For is? sure. So which one is? I mean, is well, it true? well, it's because both? the Bible is the is the testimony is the written canonized testimony of the Word of the Cross. That's what mm -hmm. the whole book yeah. is about. Okay, right. So this is why you see when Satan is f uh, fighting with Jesus, or he comes to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew four, Luke three. You see in that scene what is going on there. Uh, he's trying to tempt Jesus, and Jesus is responding with God's Word, mm -hmm. uh, with the Bible passages from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And he's rebuking the enemy, right? Um, and then Satan changes his tactic and tries to quote the Bible back to Jesus. <laughs> and then Jesus has to remind him of the context. <laughs> like Jesus has to say, no, you, you're fundamentally wrong. <laughs> and so... <laughs> it's the thrust and parry. <laughs> and so there is a sense in which the sword of the Spirit is the message of the cross. It's the Word of God, which is the message of God's salvation in the cross. Yeah. But that's what this whole book is about. Mm -hmm. So so I would say Paul's statement must entail everything that is Scripture, yeah. and it's Genesis to Revelation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I've, I've talked mm -hmm. too much. Give me your thoughts on this. No. I'm very this is the one thing where I see the analogy pressed, and I see youth groups have swords brought in when they talk <laughs> oh, about yeah. this and yeah. Yeah. Them, swing it around. <laughs> Sword drills flipping through your Bible. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I, yeah. I do think it's interesting that the... Uh, the word, it's its so fascinating to me that we're such a, a faith of the word. Um, but uh, the word is the, is the offensive we weapon, you know, yeah. that it's the thing that actually 
the message of the cross is the thing that actually does the damage, that does the... That's what pierces. The de- yeah, the defeating of these spiritual forces. Um, and you got that picture in Revelation with where Jesus is defeating his enemies with the sword of his mouth. That you know, comes, out of, comes his out of his mouth. Yeah. And, and, uh, That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't so think you're... I and what a crushing, I mean... Yeah. What a crushing defeat it would be if someone were to walk into this room and say, "Hey, I've taken over this church. I have every, you know, I have, all, I have all control of this of this building. You guys are, you know, are now subject to yeah. to whatever my whims are. Yeah. And that's basically what we're doing when we're going out and telling the, these yeah, principalities, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you crucified the Lord, Lord of Glory. But here's what happened when you did that. Mm-hmm. Oh man, you have subjugated yourself. To, yeah, that's you know, right. Like, well, let's get into that then, because we have to actually talk about who it is we're fighting against, who who it is the spiritual war is against. And I think when we when there are for sure very explicit things that he says in the texts here. Uh, so we talk about the armor, we talk about the weaponry, this uh, idea of the sword of the spirit being the word of Christ or the word of the gospel. Uh, but I think what all of these things have in common is that they're the gospel. They're somehow rooted, grounded, or explained as the good news of Jesus, right? And so why would the devil and his entire hierarchy of supernatural forces opposed to the gospel, why would they be so terrified of the good news of Jesus? Why is that? Uh, What do we see in the Old Testament that leads to us thinking that this would be a terrifying prospect uh, to know that the Son of God, God the Son, has been exalted above the heavens, now has made an open show and an open display of them in the heavenlies, uh, their defeat, and now has has conscripted and and issued um, the people of God to go out into the world and to preach this to Gentiles. The Ephesians used to be these Gentiles un- <laughs> under uh, the imprisonment. Why is this so, such a terrifying war? or warfare, or the prospect of warfare for the spiritual forces of darkness. Why is it terrifying for the spirits of darkness? For them. This is a horror show for them. Well, <laughs> so the only thing I... Be, where I first, as you said, what's terrifying is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then the Gentile, hmm. for the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. So the beginning of Romans, what's terrifying about that? That they can't... Is it terrifying because they can't stop it? They can't stop it. There's no nation, there is no culture yeah. where, the gospel, it's a message. where the gospel has not been authorized to go into and save the, yeah. the slaves of the devil and in those it, cultures. Is it also terrifying that they can't receive it? Is that another terrifying? Maybe, I don't know about that. that. That we don't know, but... Mm. <laughs> but I think what... So he mentioned several things in verse 11. He talks about the methodeos to diabalu, which is the stratagems or methods of the devil. Right? Mm-hmm. What are the strategies of the devil? Well, it's deception and captivity. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus came to set free all of those who are held captive. Mm-hmm. And the nations, the Gentile nations like the Ephesians, were held captive. They were in prison. He tells them that earlier in the book. Uh, he also mentions the rulers, archas, uh, rulers referring to an authority figure who initiates rule or authority. So the word archas is, is also um, 
the root word there is the word arche. Remember in John chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, in the beginning, God, uh, where it says, uh, what does it say? <laughs> it says, uh, in the beginning was the word. That word beginning there is the word arche. And so arkas is sort of the ruler version of that. It means the, the, the initiating ruler, the ruler who is... From which all of their authority is... Derives. Yeah. Or is subject to... So that Arcane, tells me Arcane. we're talking about a hierarchy here. Yeah. We're talking about we're ta- we're starting out with the rulers. These are the big guys. The principalities are these sort of uh, spirits that the Bible seems to teach uh, are over the nations and have enslaved the nations to idolatry. Hmm. Right. So so we start with the rulers. Um, this word is used all over the New Testament. The phrase rulers and authorities or rulers, authorities and powers. Uh, man, it appears everywhere. It appears in the Gospels. It appears in all of Paul's writings, Titus, Romans 8. Um, he mentions it earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 3. He says, in order that the many-faceted, the multifaceted wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers, powers, and authorities. And so here, he clearly has in mind, um, man, so many passages, too many to cover. But the rulers, powers, and authorities... Um, there, there are there are two realities happening. They often do refer to the human rulers, powers, and authorities that that the apostles and the church had to deal with. Right? These are the people in Romans thirteen where Paul says, "Be subject to your rulers." Mm-hmm. Right? Your governing forces. Okay, but then here we find out that there are rulers, powers, and authorities that are working in the unseen realm, uh, that are working through governance. Yeah. Now imprison people to sin and imprison people to idolatry, right? So this is mysterious. This is wild stuff. I mean, that's a and it, but that's a very like Jewish understanding, right? For that, sure. That the 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 political nations were animated by the god the demonic gods of those, oh, yeah. those nations, and that when they went to war with them, it was Yahweh versus. Whatever, yeah, whatever, oh, you know, God sure. it was, and so it's weird to us because we th- we have this idea of a secular, secular, secularized government or you know pol- polity, but um, that's not true either. <laughs> oh man, yeah, this is a yeah. very Jewish idea. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, remember when the Pharisees in John, is it John 10, where they come up to Jesus and they take issue with people calling him the Son of God? Right, and they want mm. to know: Are you the Son of God? Well, this is the same question they ask him at his trial: Are you the Christ, the Son of the Living God? Right? They want to know: Are are you claiming to be the Son of God? And remember the passage that Jesus quotes back to them mm. is Psalm eighty-two, and he said, "In your scriptures, it says you are gods. Why should you take an issue with me being called the Son of God? What is he talking about? <laughs> I want to take you to Psalm eighty-two. I want to read this passage. This is Yahweh." who is the eternal, everlasting God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the creator, as we learn in Nehemiah 9. He is the creator of all things. So he is, as Michael Heiser would say, category specific. He is category unique. There is no God but God, who is the creator of the universe. But God appears to have this counsel. Uh, you You had alluded to this of beings that he calls gods. He uses the word Elohim to refer to them. 
And that word has to do double duty. It has to describe God as the one true eternal God, and it also has to describe supernatural beings who God has created to, uh, to govern the nations. And this is what they did. They led the nations into idolatry. And so now God is telling them, this is an eschatological judgment. God is saying, guess what? Here, here's what he says. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right to the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. What is he talking about here? He's talking about Deuteronomy 32. When God allotted the nations, uh, he allotted the nations to the sons of God. Now, sometimes translations translate that as Israel, but Israel hadn't been formed yet. They weren't in Canaan yet, right? Uh, when they were given Deuteronomy, they are about to go in at the second giving of the law. Uh, so clearly he's not talking about Israel as the sons of God, but God has allotted these sons over the nations, and he's given them to say, okay, fine, govern these nations, lead them to the truth, lead them to the truth about God. Now, here in this passage, God seems to be saying, you didn't do that. You, you, you governed them unjustly. There's wickedness in the land. You've led them to idolatry. Now, look what he says here in verse 6. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you're going to die and fall like men. Arise, O God, judge the earth, and you shall inherit all the nations. So the issue here is God God's judgment so that he can inherit the nations. This is Jesus' response to the Pharisees. You shouldn't be surprised that I'm calling myself the sons of God. It's right there in your Bible. There are sons of God. It just so happens that Jesus has all the prerogatives, titles, the power, and, uh, and all of the equivalent uh, titles and prerogatives that Yahweh does of in the Old Testament. The Elohim. The Elohim. <laughs> the, the M Elohim. Yes. The eternal, uh, infinite creator of the universe. So it's just very interesting here that we do find in Jewish thought, it's very prominent in Jewish thought, this idea of these supernatural principalities, these beings, Paul calls them, seems to call them rulers, authorities, and powers, right? Yeah. How who much... So, have the nations in, in an enslaved <clears throat> state. Yeah. How much uh, does the extra biblical literature... Um, inform a New Testament understanding of this. You've got books like the Book of Enoch. Yeah, and the some, Watchers. Uh, yeah, stuff like that. How much... Is, I mean, Jude quotes yeah. Enoch. He does. Um, we don't believe that Enoch is inspired scripture, but nope. clearly the understanding of, of the yeah. the spiritual realm is informed by this. Sure. How much so? Is there, is there a new revelation in the New Testament where they're saying... Yeah, there is new revelation. What I'm saying, is there a, about the, the spiritual realm, or is it a yeah. a baptizing of sort of the Enochian view or, or whatever? Well, first of all, the second temple literature, in, in that literature that gets it right, and when we talk about the book of Enoch or second temple literature, we mean, for those listening, the Jewish literature that was written between the close of the Old Testament with Ezra and Nehemiah, which was one book in the Hebrew canon, and the opening of the New Testament, which is the Gospel of Mark or Matthew, whichever came first, right? So in, in so between those two testaments, all right, as it were, 
there was lots and lots of Jewish books and Jewish literature written. One of them was this pseudepigraphal, pseudepigraphical book, uh, the Book of Enoch. Uh, there's several of, of them. <clears throat> or the book of, you know, second and third Ezra or fourth Ezra or whatever. <laughs> so you have this Jewish literature. Now, I would say that the New Testament isn't necessarily quoting or copying that literature, but that literature and the New Testament exist in a cognitive environment. Gotcha. See what I mean? Yeah. So there, mm-hmm. there's a shared cognitive environment that they all live in. So they are all drawing from the Old Testament. If you read the book of Jubilees, for example... Uh, the Jewish book of the Jubilees, um, you can read it pretty quickly, but you'll find that all it is is an allegorization of the Old Testament in 12 Jubilee cycles. That's all it is. But it's it's totally Old Testament. Like, it's drawn, the very fabric of everything that it says comes out of the Old Testament. So while I don't think Jesus or Paul or Peter or the apostles are quoting this literature, they live in, in, this is the air they all breathe. This is the worldview, the cognitive worldview yeah. that they all share. And so I would just say they share the same view of the spiritual realm. Um, and that's why you see similarities. Yeah, okay. There. Yeah, yeah. But Jude does quote, <laughs> he does quote that intertestamental book. Um, okay, very, very good. Any case, uh, we're talking about spiritual forces in heavenly realms that are pulling the that are really pulling the strings behind the nation's opposition to the gospel. So spiritual warfare then is what? What is it? Is it binding the devil? No, it's proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the good news. And why would that be a threat to these forces? Because it's unstoppable. Because there's a new king in town. <laughs> <laughs> I don't That's know if he's point. new. There's just the inaugurated the ancient of days. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a good point. <clears throat> well, because um, their entire existence is um, defined by their enslavement of these nations in idolatry, the worship of themselves, yeah. the worship of Dagon and Baal and Asherah and all these false gods, the, uh, the names they go under and the idols that are being worshipped. And so, and so their project, their primary project is to enslave people to idolatry and the gospel sets people free from the captivity of idolatry. You want to talk about spiritual warfare? Folks, if you want to engage in spiritual warfare, share the gospel mm-hmm. with your LDS neighbor. Mm-hmm. Share the yeah. gospel with your atheist engineer neighbor. Yeah. Share the good news. Go on a missions trip to Puerto Vallarta or to Cuba or somewhere mm-hmm. where people are in the grip of the yeah. devil and share the good news because that is, that is what is horrifying for these gods now, and they can do nothing about it. They can't stop it mm-hmm. because the word penetrates like a sword, like a mm-hmm. double-edged sword, yeah. which can pierce joint and marrow. <clears throat> so you're and, saying that we don't need to know the names and the ranks and the we don't need to know the hierarchy of the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms in order to engage in spiritual warfare? I know what you're referring to. <laughs> <laughs> Makes me angry just hearing it. <laughs> Why? What, what are you thinking? Oh, it just I just think it's like we've been talking about. It. It's just an over-spiritualization. You're yeah. missing the point. You're 
you're actually creating pitfalls. You're actually leading people astray yeah, yeah. Uh, from the battle that is raging. You preach the gospel to others and preach the gospel to yourself yeah. because there is a war taking place within our hearts. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think this is why Paul, I mean, at the end of Ephesians, he's saying, put on the armor of God. In chapters four, he's saying, put off the old flesh and put on the new self. That's right. There is a, also a battle that's taking place for your heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, fight there and fight out there by preaching the gospel. Oh, man, <clears throat> that's it. That's the summary. And I think what, Daniel, you're referring to is the charismatic uh, practice, and I I used to do this, so I know it well, Uh, and that is trying to identify uh, whether the the demon that is over you or your area is a a ruler, power, or an authority, right, or a principality, right? And so that you can properly, and what these charismatic teachers would teach is that so that you can properly address your foe, address your enemy. And so they would go and then extrapolate into this circuitous, wildly that, that complicated system. this demon doesn't system. have the authority, but this one you know, doesn't have yeah. that specific authority, but this one does, and so you need to go after yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, and the reason I bring this up is because I used to attend a church, and the pastor to- told my friend, my best friend, while he was praying for his deliverance from this demon of sex, that this demon was a frog spirit from the the story of the Ten Commandments and Egypt. You know, he was a frog spirit, <clears throat> and so in order for him to be released from this, he had to name the spirit, and then and then uh, the pastor would would cast it off of him, right? And I remember him doing that. And I remember at the time I was such a young Christian, I didn't know what was going on, and I remember thinking, that sounds stupid. (laughs) Like, that sounds not biblical at all. And I hardly had any education in the Word. And that's the sort of thing that sort of turns spiritual warfare into divination, actually. Mm, People actually unwittingly begin to practice the occult by trying to engage in spiritual warfare. And what Paul is so clearly saying here is, that's exactly not what you want to do. What you want to do is live right, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. Go to war with your flesh. Live the God. Let the gospel take hold of your life and tell people the good news of salvation. Because the devil isn't afraid of you shouting at him. He's not afraid of you naming <laughs> the frog spirit or some stupid stuff like that. He's terrified. He is shaking in his boots at the prospect that someone he has in captivity to idolatry would be released from it mm-hmm. because of the preaching of the gospel. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so don't do goofy stuff. Mm-hmm. And make sure that anything that you so-called practice spiritual warfare is grounded in the Word. Uh, and that's, that is so critical. What about prayer, though? He mentions here, mm-hmm. he says, after all this... It says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and, uh, with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. Now see what he's saying. I'm practicing spiritual warfare. Pray for me that I may open my mouth boldly and speak these words to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I, I am an ambassador in chains. So the whole idea here is pray... Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. Pray for me. Pray for us to have boldness yeah. in sharing the gospel. Why is prayer so critical, Daniel? What is? Because prayer is our our connection point to the start, the power of the Lord. Really, like yeah. 
we're we're calling in the big guns. We're not trying to right. shout at the devil. We're we're petitioning the God of heaven and earth to make effective that which he has promised to make effective. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that you, you brought up that second Corinthians passage where it says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal mm-hmm. and, but they're and, mighty. and I think you have prayer, worship, sacrificial love. You have the, these are the things that, that yeah. go out and prayer is the, is the baseline is the baseline entrance into spiritual yeah. warfare, right. uh, and you right. see in in Daniel that weird story of weird. Prays, yeah. And fourteen days later, an angel shows up and is like, "Hey, sorry, man, it was really hairy. <laughs> the battle was really hairy. I, I left the moment that you started praying, but the you know the this spiritual authority over this this region know, opposed me. Yeah, the Prince of Persia. But but had Daniel stopped praying, like what? You know, I'm not saying that. His yeah. prayer sustained the warfare, right. but he would have he you know he he engaged in his part. Yeah, you know, um, and so great point, mm-hmm. great point. I, you mentioned I a couple of things in that. One would be God has promised, and I would take that to mean God has sovereignly decreed that prayer is the capstone of our warfare. Here, that's the last mm-hmm. thing he talks about. So it's the capstone, and so first of all, God. God has sovereignly decreed that this is how we engage in the war, and therefore our prayer, it doesn't matter how impotent it feels at the time, yeah. prayer is is powerful because God has decreed yeah. it. And secondly, I would say that prayer, um, prayer connects us uh, to the kingdom of heaven. And you had mentioned something about that. And I think the way it does it is it demonstrates, like fasting, it demonstrates our vulnerability. Yeah. There, there's nothing weaker than if you kneel to pray. I mean, if you were yeah. facing an actual physical foe and you kneel down in front of that foe, he could take your head off. Mm. You know, And so there's nothing, nothing more vulnerable, a more, there's nothing weaker for us to do. I think this is, I think this is why prayer is such a difficult discipline from a lot of Christians. Yeah. Because our flesh hates it because it is the confession that we are not Man. sovereign over our lives. Right. That we are powerlessness. Right. That we you know, sorry, that we are powerless. And and I think our I think our flesh hates it. Right. The enemy hates it on top of that. Right. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why it's the baseline d- discipline of the Christian life, and yet mm. you talk to people about, hey, you know, how's your prayer life? And, well, it's not anywhere close to where yeah. I'd like it to be. Yeah. But Paul said, when I am weak, I am strong. And that's the way we need to view our prayer life, Yeah, mm-hmm. is it is intentional, the practicing, the sure. discipline of my weakness, which acknowledges that only God is strong. Mm-hmm. Only God has the resources to meet this need, regardless of what the doctor does, or regardless of sure. what resources God provides. Yeah. God is the one who meets this need, and I don't have any resources to meet the need. And that, mm-hmm. that's that's what God likes. <laughs> I and mean, God, it God likes glory. that. It brings him glory. That's right. Absolutely. And we're tempted to believe the lie that our prayer is not powerful in its effect, but the prayer of a righteous person, as James says, in association with the confession of sin, means that, that that's yeah. where the power and recognition comes. So we, mm. we, sh- we ought not believe that lie. We must undermine that lie continuously. Mm. We must. We must. And that's part of spiritual warfare, mm-hmm. is reminding ourselves of the truth. Yeah. Okay, Josh, your thoughts. 
Um, no, this has been great. <laughs> <laughs> Looking over your notes, I was I learned a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Get, getting to hear you guys. Well, talk the notes I sent you guys were partly from a Christian doctrine course that I teach here at Christ Community Church. I'm going to teach it again, but I might just do it in chunks where I have a little bit more time to spend on on those kinds of things where I can just do a few weeks and unpack those passages and we can look them all up and and uh, yeah yeah. Uh, any other thoughts on this <clears throat> passage or things we need to take away from it? So I, I think one of the things I, I want to remind my team about lately, and that's what I've been pushing here in the last couple months, is that um, it's really easy to get to get focused on, you know, the the technical stuff on Sunday morning of mm. executing the service in a way that's not like doing doing the the little things. And we want to do those well. We want to do those excellently to the glory of God. We don't want to be a distraction to people. We want the word to go forth in a way that that people are receptive. We want all that stuff. Absolutely. Um, but it's really easy to get focused on those things right. and get frustrated by those things and, and forget that the whole reason that we're there is because we are fighting a spiritual war. Yeah. We're f- like this is this is a war for the soul, the hearts, minds, and souls of people. And you can get really burnt out as a as a volunteer. You can get burnt out as a Christian when you're caught up in the the minutia of the the technical stuff and yeah, forget yeah, that hey, yeah. that's all serving the purpose of of fighting this spiritual battle which we've been promised victory in. Mm-hmm. And um, so we don't want to be we don't want to be hyper spiritual and turn everything into a, you know a weird occultic yeah, you know that's right kind of thing but we also don't want to forget that w- you know we we talk about being there on sunday morning and i was, I was telling the team i give it this example i'm sorry to be talking but i give this example of you know the different you know the difference between a good team and a good culture and i compare the buccaneers versus the patriots over the last 20 years Hell right yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i you know I, I give this i give this example and i say okay so why is this important because what we're doing on sunday morning is a thousand times more important than winning a Super Bowl. Yeah, that's right. And we forget that, mm-hmm. you know. We and and so when we say, "Hey, don't do sports on Sunday morning. Come to church on Sunday morning." That's right. It's a thousand times more important than times. your kid playing, you know, whatever. Like it we can make that claim because of this passage. We're right. engaged yeah. in a in a in a cosmic war here. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, um good good thought to end on. And I will just encourage everyone, read the passage uh, through, read everything in the New Testament that Paul has to say and the New Testament has to say about spiritual warfare, and then uh, live according to the truth and not according to deception. Do not have any idols in your life. Don't take on any gods that are not the true God of the universe. Hmm. And then share the gospel of Jesus. Be ready, mm-hmm. be prepared, be protected by it, but also mm-hmm. be prepared to share it, and then do share it. And pray for those who are sharing it. Pray for those mm-hmm. who are going out and sharing it. And that's the war. That's the war. Amen. 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 Thank you, brothers. Thank Love you. you guys. Great conversation. Thank you.